On the Seder night, we gather our families and friends around the table and we fulfill a mitzvah that, although we do to a certain extent all year round to commemorate the exodus from Egypt, we do in far greater detail at the Pesach Seder, which means that every element of the Pesach Seder must speak to the heart of what the story of leaving Egypt is all about. And what we'll discover is that while we celebrate the immense miracles of the exodus, we also acknowledge that it is a work in progress and that we still have a way to go. And these concepts are illustrated in some of the key elements of what we read at the Pesach Seder. We know very well that there's a distinction between how we fulfill the mitzvah to recall the Exodus on the night of Pesach versus how we do it every other day of the year. And one of those differences is that throughout the year, in order to fulfill your mitzvah, you just simply mention Yetzirah Mitzrayim. Mitzvah lahazkir Yetzirah Mitzrayim, as the expression goes from the Rambam. It's just a mitzvah to mention, as we do now davening, the fact that there was an exodus. Whereas on Pesach night, ha mitzvah he sipur b'yetzirah Mitzrayim. On Pesach night, the mitzvah is to tell the story, which implies detail. As the Rambam says, mitzvah saseh shal Torah. It is a mitzvah mandated by the Torah. To relate all of the miracles and wonders that occurred to our, to our ancestors, to our forefathers in Egypt. Seeing as the idea of sharing the story and recalling the story of the Exodus is a foundational principle and a core belief of the Jewish people. And it's something which incorporates many mitzvahs, positive and negative mitzvahs, in order to fulfill it. And it's such an important part of Judaism that it's consistently included in our prayers, in our brochas, in our kiddushim, etc., Move on. We therefore have to conclude that you have to imagine that the night of Pesach will incorporate and, and will, um, will deal with the overarching message of the Exodus. And it's in the story of Pesach that we'll tell at our Seder where we will experience and discover this foundational principle of Judaism. The fact that we are to recall and share the story of Pesach at the Seder is learned from the Pasuk that says you will tell your son all the details of the story, which translates in practical terms into us reading the Haggadah. So therefore, we know that any theme is most highlighted at the beginning and at the end of where you discuss the theme. Move on, we can conclude that the idea of sharing the story of the Exodus, which we've explained, it's not just good enough to tell the story. We have to tell the story in such a way that we convey how this is a foundational element of the whole of Judaism. That must be that has to be something we identify most profoundly at the beginning and at the end. The beginning and the end of the core section of the Haggadah telling the story of Pesach. As the Mishnah tells us in Pesachim, we start off by telling the less pretty elements of Jewish history and then we end off with the great praise of the Jewish people. So we start off, 
Start off by saying how we were slaves. And how our ancestors were originally idolaters. Then we talk about what stood us through all of the challenges of our history. Then, and then we got to go into all the details that effectively tell us the history, right from the beginning, from Yaakov's experiences, right through to the story of the Exodus itself. And, and that's the core Haggadah itself. The truth is, one step before that, based on a long-standing Jewish tradition that goes all the way through the generations, before we start to tell the story, we, use it, we, we start with a paragraph that says, this is the bread of affliction or poverty that our forefathers ate, which is said right at the beginning, even before the child asks the questions, which are the intro to the story of the Exodus. And so therefore, so it must be that that also speaks to the core and overarching theme of the whole story of telling about Yitzhak Mitzrayim. That's the beginning. Likewise, when we get to the other book end, the, the part where we round off the story of the Exodus, which is we concluded with that list of 15 different great things that Hashem did for us, for which we are eternally grateful. What's the last one of them? That Hashem built for us a base Hamikdash in Yerushalayim to atone for all of our sins. So now, if we want to understand what is the big message and the foundational principle of Judaism that is encapsulated and shared in the story of the Exodus, we need to pay attention to these bookends, to the starting point and the ending point of the story of the Exodus. We're going to raise a number of questions on these paragraphs that we've just very briefly uh, um, mentioned. So let's go through each of them and, and raise the questions that follow. First of all, we start off by saying that this is the matzah that our forefathers ate in Egypt. So now, first of all, you need to know that in the Seder, in the Haggadah, the word Magid, which introduces the part that tells the story of the Exodus, precedes Heilach Ma'anya. So that tells us that the fact we say this paragraph at that point it's not just simply an invitation in case there's anybody out there who doesn't have a Seder. Before we begin our Seder, we make an announcement. Anybody's welcome to join us. Because if that was the intention, we actually should have said it earlier before we began the Seder. As soon as we got home, or even earlier, we should have actually made that announcement in short, bang on the table and say, anybody who needs a place for Pesach, come to me. Because when we say any person who needs what Pesach is all about, that implies somebody who may not have wine for the Seder. Which means they can't make Kiddush. We're saying, hey, Lachmania, and inviting people to our Seder after Kiddush has already been made. So there has to be something else about this paragraph that is not just a simple, broad invitation for any Jew without a Seder. So why is this paragraph right at the beginning of the Seder? Gam, it's not only that it's 
also there for this reason. Over Ikra, it's primarily there for this reason. What reason? Because it's actually the introductory paragraph to the story of Exodus. That's why you have the word Magid, which says we're now going to tell the story of the Exodus from Egypt. And then we start. If that is the case, then it really doesn't make sense that we should say this paragraph, particularly at that time. But in a movement, it seems strange. There are three points shared in this paragraph, none of which seem to speak to the theme of Exodus. In fact, they seem to speak to the opposite theme. Aleph, let's start off. How does it start? This is the bread of affliction or of poverty that our forefathers ate in Mitzrayim. That's not describing the Exodus. That emphasizes how bad things were in Mitzrayim. How does that fit the story of Yitzias Mitzrayim? Base. Secondly, how do we wrap up that paragraph? We say, We acknowledge that we are still in Golos. We are not in Israel. And we are slaves. Slaves in a spiritual sense, if anything. So that's also the opposite of the theme. The theme is about redemption, liberation, and exodus. And the paragraph is all about how we're still stuck in a sense. How could that be the opener? How do you start a conversation about the fact that we Baruch Hashem are out of Mitzrayim by emphasizing how we're pretty much still in Mitzrayim, at least spiritually? What could possibly connect this paragraph to the story of Exodus? Surely, if the whole theme that we're about to embark upon, which is to tell the story of the Exodus and to re-experience Yitzhak Mitzrayim, surely the overarching sentiment should be freedom. We are now free. And in fact, that translates into halacha. We're told by the halacha that we're supposed to go through all the activities of the night of the Seder, like free people leaning to the left and having fancy dishes on the table and drinking wine, etc. And how do you start the entire journey with a paragraph that says, actually, we're still stuck? How does that work? Okay. So you might want to say, you might want to squeeze the following answer through to satisfy the curiosity of the person asking the question. You'd say, We're saying this is the bread our forefathers ate back then in Mitzrayim. Maybe what we're trying to say is, That it was our forefathers who were in Egypt. And by contrast, we're free. We're not in Egypt. Maybe you could even squeeze an answer and say the fact that we're saying we are currently here outside of Israel and currently slaves. That's along the lines of what the Mishnah says, that the style of the Haggadah should be you first start off with the bad news and then you move towards the good news. So maybe that's the answer. The Rebbe does not accept it as an answer. It's not a good answer for a variety of reasons. I left number one. If that is the thinking, then at least we should have first allowed the child to ask the questions, what's so special and unique about this night? And then say, well, you know, because our fathers ate this matzah in Mitzrayim, they had poverty in Mitzrayim, and we're free. It doesn't make sense to put this paragraph before Manishtana. It belongs like every other part of the Haggadah 
after Manishtana. Shari Amira Sagad Mitzvah Omra Derech Tshuva Al Shaila Shasholuhu. As the Rambam tells us, the style of the Haggadah is supposed to be responses to questions. And this would have been one of the responses. It, it just doesn't make sense. This sounds like an intro to the entire process, and it seems like a skewed intro. Number two, base. Haklal maschil beginus. When the Mishnah tells us that we start with the more degrading elements of our history. Which is designed so as to contrast and therefore highlight the praise that we experience having left Mitzrayim. That is only a principle that you could talk in the past. Things were bad and now they're better. That makes sense. We started off in a poor position. Now we're in a great position. As the Chazal tell us, why do we start first speaking about how we were slaves? And that originally our ancestors were idolaters, which is starting with the degrading parts of our history. And then from there we go to the positive with our current circumstances. And Hashem drew us close to serve Him, unlike our ancestors who served idols. That helps us to appreciate how much praise there is. And that makes us feel free. So when does it make sense to say, Say, it used to be bad, and now it is good, and therefore we celebrate. Now that theory doesn't apply if I want to describe something that's negative currently. <laughs> that works against us. Now we're here. Now we're slaves. The truth is what? We do daven and we trust. And this is our comfort. That we will get to Israel. We will be free. But that is wistful, that is looking to the future, that is aspirational. How does it make us feel free now? Another question about this paragraph. When we do invite people in to participate in the Pesach Seder and to eat and have the needs for the Pesach Seder that they may lack, what does that connect or how does that connect to the theme of telling the story of the Exodus? So, therefore, we have no choice but to say that it is absolutely clear that that paragraph, Heilach Manya, doesn't tell the actual story of Exodus. Because the story of the Exodus will come as a response to the questions of the child. Despite that, this is relevant, and as we'll learn later, deeply relevant to the process of telling the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Why? Because actually the first paragraph, Heilach Ma'anya, addresses a very deep general question about the whole experience of Pesach and the Seder. question that we'll learn about later on. In fact, everything we're going to discuss will all center on this particular question. But Heilach Ma'anya starts to address a mega question that we should have 
about our experience of Pesach. While we're still on this paragraph, let's just look at the language. This is the bread of poverty that our forefathers ate in Egypt. This is strange, and many of the commentaries asked about it. Why do we eat matzah today? It's to commemorate that when the Jews left Mitzrayim, they ate matzah. It's not supposed to remind us of the matzah they ate while slaves still in Mitzrayim. We say it and on the Pesach night itself, later on. This matzah that we eat, why do we eat it? Because their dough couldn't rise, didn't have the opportunity to rise when they left Egypt. Quote the Pasuk that explains that they had these round dough that uh, elements of dough that became matzahs because they were chased out of Egypt. So why are we are talking about the matzah in Egypt if actually we should be addressing the matzah they ate after they left Egypt? So what's the most popular answer that people give? That the staple food of Jews as slaves in Egypt was matzah. And people will argue that that's what they used to typically give to slaves or captives, because it's something which is difficult to process, takes time, keeps people full for longer. They simply didn't have time to produce proper bread because they were under the whip, literally, all the time. So that's the classic answer that's always given. They used to eat matzahs in Egypt. The maral completely rejects that answer and says, The Maharal says to argue that the Jews ate matzah in Egypt is to deny what the Torah and what truth is. What the Torah says and what truth, truth is. There is no classical Jewish source, neither scriptural nor rabbinic, that the Egyptians fed the Jews matzah. Why do we eat matzah? Because matzah was a unique food that came about as they rushed out of Egypt. So why do we then say, this is the bread that our forefathers ate? Just to add to this, and if, for whatever reason it is, we dafka have to remember the matzah that the Jews ate in Egypt, the writer, the author of the Haggadah would have would have corroborated this with a verse, as he does throughout the Haggadah. And we have no such thing. So that's very odd. Okay, so those are our questions on Helach Manya. It seems completely misplaced as an introduction to the Haggadah. Let's look at the next piece that we say after Manishtana. What do we say? We were slaves to Paro in Mitzrayim. And Hashem took us out with a powerful, strong hand. And then we say, Had Hashem not taken our forefathers out of Egypt, then all of us and our children, children's children, would still be enslaved to Paro. It's a very obvious question. When Hashem introduced the decree that the Jews would be foreigners in Egypt, they would suffer. It was given an extent of 400 years. How could we say, and if Hashem hadn't taken us out? 
it was impossible for the Golos to be longer than 400 years. We're over 3,000 years later. When the 400 years were up, in whichever way it would have happened, we would no longer be slaves. So how do we say that we still would be slaves now? And just to understand this more philosophically, spiritually. If the Jews were by nature, both psychological nature or spiritual nature, slave mentality individuals. We'd need some kind of major intervention to remove the slave mentality from the Jewish people. But seeing as the Jews were historically, psychologically, and spiritually fundamentally free people. Only because of a decree that Hashem made when He made the covenant with Avram Avinu, because of that decree they were to become slaves. As soon as the decree ends, you go back to your default state, which is free people. doesn't need effort. They should have automatically become free. So why are we saying, if they hadn't been miraculously freed at that time, we would still be slaves? That implies that we're inherently slaves. And don't say, ah, well, the fact is they needed Hashem to take them out because they didn't actually stay there for 400 years. They were slaves for 210 years. So maybe that's why we say we needed Hashem to take us out. Even that's not a good enough explanation. First of all, that still doesn't explain why Hashem had to take us out. We're fundamentally free people. We don't need to be rescued. We just need the time to lapse. And the idea of the 400 years is actually just a matter of when the calculations began. It was never that there would be 400 years of slaves. It would be 400 years of foreigners. Either way you look at it, it doesn't change the fact. Whenever that 400 year time frame lapses, even if you calculate differently, we would have automatically become free. So why are we insisting that had Hashem not taken us out, we wouldn't be free? And secondly, what do we say? If not for Hashem's rescue, we would still till today and generations past us would still remain enslaved to Paroi. That's exactly the opposite of what Hashem told them. That the fourth generation would come home. So it really doesn't make any sense. How do we say it? If Hashem had not taken us out, we would still be slaves. And for the next few generations, it makes no sense. So a big question about Heilach Mania is, it seems to be a contrary theme to the theme of the Haggadah. How could it be the introduction? A big question about Avodim Ayunu is, why do we need this big intervention that was only supposed to last for 400 years? And how could you possibly suggest that we'd be slaves for the long term, if not for Hashem's rescue? Next paragraph. We say, We say that originally our ancestors served idols. And now, Hashem has drawn us close to serve Him. Some very glaring questions in that piece. Aleph number one. 
What does it mean when we say that Hashem drew us close to His service? We're referring to Akavani Lidoris Shemizman Avram Avinu Ve'elach. We're talking about from the time of Avram Avinu and onwards, because that's when people became conscious of Hashem, and it was passed down through the family and later through the generations. He, Avram Avinu, was the first person that Hashem drew close to serve him. After everybody up until and including his father Terach had been idolaters. If that's the historical fact, why do we say at the Haggadah, Now Hashem has drawn us close. We should have instead said, Afterwards, some later point in our history, then Hashem brought us close. Now, you might want to say, but that's how Torah speaks, and we speak in the present tense, even though it's talking about something that happened long ago. Even if you want to use that argument, that when we say the word now, we don't mean now in 2022, but rather, we don't mean it's necessarily at the time you're reading the Haggadah. We're talking in the voice of the person who left Egypt, and that person would say, now Hashem has drawn us close. Even if you go with that perspective, Still doesn't make sense. Even if you want to put the whole Haggadah into the voice of an individual who left Mitzrayim, the fact is that to draw us close to his service happened long before, not only before Yitzhak Mitzrayim, but Mitzrayim, even before the, they entered Egypt. And not only that, even before the covenant where Hashem promised that there would be an Egyptian exile. As the Haggadah will immediately prove from the Pasuk, Hashem says, I took your forefather Avraham from across the river and brought him close to me. Why can we say, why do we say, now we're close? It's not now. For a long time we've been close. Question number two, as we've already discussed, the key theme of the Seder and Haggadah is to tell the stories of the Exodus. We want to know about the great miracles Hashem did and the fact that we were freed. All of this paragraph, that our ancestors served idols, it's got nothing to do with the Exodus. Only because the Mishnah tells us that as a principle, you're supposed to first start with the dark side of our history. And we have to mention the fact that there were idols in our past. So we have to balance that by saying that we're no longer like that. We've, we've come close to Hashem since. It's, it's not clear. Why do we dafka say over here that Hashem brought us close to Him? What would have sounded a lot better and stronger and, and very much in our favor would have been to say that now or subsequently anu we we could even be specific and say Avram Avinu we became close to Hashem instead of Hashem drew us close which makes us sound like we're passive and perhaps didn't even work it out on our own we should say Avram Avinu paved the way blazed a path of connection to Hashem and we call our now moving which therefore forces us to understand that for some reason in order to tell the story of the Exodus, 
It's relevant for us to know that right now Hashem has drawn us close. Not only that historically at some point Hashem drew us close. But it's, it's relevant in every single generation, including when I sit at my Pesach Seder this year, at that moment I can say Hashem is now drawing me close. We'll explore later why that is relevant. So the key factor we have to look at over here is we're not simply telling a history over here. We're describing a relationship with Hashem which is dynamic and happening now and that is relevant to the story of the Exodus and we need to know why. Next paragraph to examine is V'hisha'om How we say that this is what stood us through all the times that in every generation they tried to destroy us. God forbid and Hashem rescued us from their hands. So in here we can ask questions that are quite broad. Number one, Let's just think for a second. Outside of the Pesach Seder, just a simple logical discussion. We're describing how Hashem saved us from those who wanted Chas V'Shalom to destroy us. Now, who are those people? If those people who wanted to destroy us were good, wholesome, spiritual, righteous people, then then we can understand the great surprise. Guess what? In spite of them being such great people, still, Hashem still saved us from their hands. But that's not the fact. Who wanted to kill us through the generations? The worst of the worst. Absolutely toxic people. How do There was a chance, that they could have damaged us. But Baruch Hashem, thank God, Hashem chose not to support the bad side. And instead, He saved us from their hands. Why is this a big cup and a big celebration? Especially when you consider that the world and everything in it was created for the sake of the Jewish people. Kamaimer, as the expression goes, Bereshis. The first word of the Torah implies that the world and everything in it was created for the sake of the Jewish people who are called racist. Meaning that the ultimate purpose of all existence, which includes the ultimate purpose of every human, is to be able to assist the Jewish people to fulfill Hashem's mission in this world. Now, the fact is people don't know this. And it's not obvious that the Jewish people are the pinnacle of creation. It's very obvious why that is. To allow the possibility of choice. That we should be able to subdue the negative in the world and transform it to positive. But just because Hashem devised a system that allows for free choice doesn't change the fact that the purpose of all of existence is for the Jewish people to fulfill Hashem's mission. So therefore, to save us from those who wanted to destroy us, that has to happen. Can't be any other way because that is the purpose of the whole of creation. So why are we so surprised? Baruch Hashem, God came through for us, as if we imagined He might not. Beis, the other question is, Just this whole concept that there are always people who want to kill us, that also needs to be understood. 
not, besides the philosophical question, obviously, why did Hashem create anti-Semitism? But this is a Pesach question. You've just said that in every generation they wanted to kill us. So if that's the case, why is this something we only discuss on Pesach when we talk about the Exodus? Why don't we have this kind of, it doesn't have to be an identical paragraph, but why don't we have this kind of liturgy on other days when the Jewish people were saved? In fact, it's not historically accurate to say that they wanted to kill us at the time of Egypt. Because the Egyptian and Pharaoh's intentions were not to destroy us. Like we read on the Pesach night in the Haggadah. Paroi only wanted to harm the boys. Which we in the Pesach say to contrast against Lavan, who wanted to kill everybody. And again, Pesach is unlike Purim, where there was a threat by Achashverosh against every single man, man, woman, and child of the Jewish people. So why is this the place that we speak about how Hashem saved us from everybody? And the last paragraph that we'll look at is all the way at the end. We list 15 things to give praise to Hashem associated with the story of the Exodus. And the last is that he allowed us to build a base in Yerushalayim to atone for all of our sins. So there too, Tzarek Lavin, we have to raise a few questions. Number one, 14 out of the 15 items on the list are just listed without an explanation of why they were good for us. And in fact, some of them, we even find the commentators on the Haggadah battle to explain why they were good for us, like bringing us in front of Mount Sinai and not giving us the Torah. How could that possibly be good? Right? Why is it that Dafka, you come to the 15th, the final one on the list, that Hashem built us or allowed us to build a base Now it explains what's good about that because we have a place to atone. Why do we need to know this? Okay, let's assume for whatever reason it is, at that point we needed an explanation of why the base Amikdash is good for us. There's a much easier way that you could explain why it's good for us. The author of the Haggadah should have selected the most obvious benefit of the Beis HaMikdash, which is stated clearly in the Torah, that Hashem says, make for me a Beis HaMikdash and I will be with you. I'll live amongst you. Which implies that the ultimate goal and achievement of the Beis HaMikdash is that the Divine Presence rests with us. Yes, that particular pasuk refers to the Mishkan. Whereas the Haggadah is referring to the Beis Hamikdash. But that's not a question. That only strengthens the point. The greatness of the Beis Hamikdash in a certain sense even outdoes the greatness of the Mishkan. It's because you could see the Divine Presence regardless of who you were and regardless of your stature. 
You could see godliness. As the Mishnah in Pirkei tells us that there were ten obvious miracles that occurred regularly in the Beis HaMikdash that everybody could see. So that's the most obvious reason to say, you know what's so special about the, about the Beis HaMikdash? Divine revelation that we could experience. So why does the author of the Haggadah say, you know what's great about the Beis HaMikdash? It atones for our sins. Gimel Yeser al Third question, which takes it even further. We can all acknowledge that the main goal of the Beis Hamikdash is divine presence. The fact that the Beis Hamikdash facilitates divine presence is of benefit to every single Jew, including the Jew who doesn't have to atone. Whereas if you say that the greatness of the Beis HaMikdash is that we can atone for our sins, well, that would only be relevant to people who have sins that they feel they need to atone for. And lastly, a technical question. Why do we call it over here Hashem's chosen home? Why doesn't he use the more common expression, which is also used elsewhere in the Haggadah? So, Call it the Beis Hamikdash. Why are you calling Beis Habichira? Hey, veho iker. And then the core question over here is, my hu hakeshe be my lachrena zoi. What is the connection between this greatness that Hashem did for us? Bono lonas beis habichira the kapar al kolav enisenu to build the Beis Hamikdash. Liyetzias mitzrayim. Why is that part of the story? Or the sipper liyetzias mitzrayim. Why is it part of the story of the Exodus? It has nothing to do with the Exodus. Bishlom akol hamaylas aniskaris adich nisonu leretz Yisrael. Everything that was described from leaving Egypt until they arrived in Israel, can all be explained, even if it's a bit of a stretch, as part of the story of the Exodus. Because, as long as the Jews were in the desert, until they arrived in a settlement in Israel, anybody could understand that the Exodus wasn't complete because you're still wandering around in the desert. As Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu to tell the Jewish people, first he expresses redemption. I'll take you out. I'll save you. I'll redeem you. I'll take you. That's all what Hashem told Moshe. He doesn't stop there. He concludes by saying, "I'll bring you to the land because it's very obvious. And until you come into the land, into the land, the Yitzias Mitzrayim is not over." But building the Beis Hamikdash, that's no longer Exodus from Egypt. That should be part of another story, another chapter, settling and creating holiness in Israel. So why is this part of the Pesach Seder? Okay, so we have the question about Helech seems an inappropriate introduction. Avodim Hayunu, how could we possibly still be slaves? Why are we so fixated on the fact that our forefathers were idolaters and saying only now Hashem drew us close to Him, which doesn't seem right? Vehi Sheomda. There are many other places where we could have spoken about how, how our enemies wanted to destroy us. And how can we even imagine that it's a big relief that, thank God, Hashem didn't take their side? And why do we speak about the Binah and Beis HaBechira? Call it a Beis HaBechira. What's it got to do with Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim? And why is the big deal that it atones for our sins? Where really it should be the great deal is that it's divine presence. To answer all of those things, we have to discover one very fundamental question about not only the Haggadah, but the entire experience of Pesach and Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. The entire explanation hinges on this next principle. 
So we come to the sit down at the Pesach Seder table. Now it's time to start telling the Haggadah. Even before the child, who is the target audience of the entire Seder, even before he starts to get the details of Mitzrayim and Yetzias Mitzrayim, etc., Immediately, as soon as the child sits down, the child immediately has some key questions. These are questions that have to be addressed to his satisfaction. Before you could even begin the Haggadah. First question any child will think about. I don't get it. We're here celebrating the fact that the Jews left Egypt and we're in Golos again. Why was that not a one final Yetzias Mitzrayim? Okay, it would make sense if it was a human being who had, uh, who had, uh, who had facilitated the Exodus. Then we'd say, then the human, we'd say, is limited and can change. So therefore, therefore, his actions will have their limitations and could change. So he rescued the group of people, and then the rescue couldn't see them through for the long term. But that's not what happened. Because the Exodus was Hashem's handiwork, Hashem Elikim Emes. And Hashem is absolute unwavering truth. Which means anything that Hashem does is absolutely true and absolutely eternal. Then if Hashem took the Jewish people out of slavery, that should never relapse. So therefore, the child wants to know why we're still in Golos now, why are we still hearing anti-Semitic events happening, why do we still have Jews who are lost to their Judaism? We're not just in any Golos. We're in such a difficult Golos that they are consistent attempts on our lives. It feels like we're living through the experiences that they had while slaves in Egypt. For Yosem is even worse. So what's going on over here? Question one. Question two. Question two. Seeing as the Jews left Egypt with immense wealth, as they wish to promise them, why the Jews were poor? Their Abishta promised us wealth. The child looks around and says, We have guests at our table who are they're poor people or they don't have a Pesach Seder. Why is that? Gimel. Third issue on the child's mind. Beyond what we've already said, one of the things that occurs in the structure of the Seder, which is to address the child, is in a that you're supposed to address four potential sons. Which implies, that implies that not only will a Seder have a wise, engaged, observant son, but even a rebellious son. And a simple son, the son who doesn't even know how to start questioning. How do you understand this? We know that the wicked of that generation did not leave Egypt. 
And a mesa b'shloshes afela, they died quietly in the three days of immense darkness where the Egyptians couldn't see what was going on. So if every Jew who left Egypt was not a Russia, where did Rishoyim suddenly come from? So why are we still in Golos? Why are there poor people? Why are there Jews who are disengaged? And don't try to answer this by saying, yeah, yeah, well, the type of Russia we have at our Pesach Seder is not as, as Russia as we're in Egypt then. Because look what we say in the Haggadah when we speak to the wicked son. We say, This is somebody, had he been there, he would not have been taken out of Egypt. That implies that it's the same kind of person. And there's a technicality that Hashem now chose us as his Jewish people. So nobody gets left behind. So these questions, these three core questions, why are we still in Godless? Why are there poor Jews? And why are there disaffected Jews? They're not just simple questions. These are questions that attack the entire process of what we're doing at the Seder night. Why are we here? Celebrating what? Celebrating wealth as poor people. Celebrating connection to God as people disconnected. Celebrating freedom, we're not free. The whole purpose of the Seder is for us to experience as if we personally are leaving Egypt now. For which reason, that's why we lean while we're eating. So that we're experiencing a royal experience. Torah is not into drama. Torah is truth. So therefore the Torah doesn't want us just to put on a show of being free people. We're supposed to experience and feel personal freedom. How is that possible? How can a person possibly view themselves as if they are personally currently leaving Mitzrayim? When he knows he's in Golos. Where there are ongoing anti-Semitic threats, including in the Holy Land. And there are so many destitute Jews. Some are physically destitute and some are spiritually destitute. To the extent that there might even be wicked Jews in today's world. What are we celebrating here tonight? Why, 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 why have a Pesach Seder? That's the first confusion we have to address early on at the Seder, even before we begin everything else. And to do that, we start by saying And is a sobering paragraph because it tells us It is an introduction to the entire process and the story of the Exodus from Egypt. But it is also very sobering because it tells us when the Jews left Egypt and then they ate matzah as free people because because as we know, there wasn't enough time for the dough to rise. The opening paragraph of the, of the Pesach Seder calls the matzah they ate outside of Egypt. It calls it matzah that they ate in Mitzrayim. That the Exodus was incomplete. In a certain respect, the Jews remained in Mitzrayim. Like the cliche goes, 
you can take the Jew out of Egypt. It's not so easy to take the Egypt out of the Jew. And once we understand that sobering thought, that it was an incomplete redemption, because the Jews psychologically, spiritually, didn't leave Egypt completely, everything else will start to fall into place. Although we'll leave you with a niggling question, so what are we celebrating? But we'll get to that. So let's first look at Helach What do we say? Anybody who's hungry, come. Anybody who needs Pesach, come. The fact that there are poor people amongst us. The fact that we still experience Golos, as we say in that paragraph, we're still here, we're not where we're supposed to be, and we're still slaves. That is all the result of the fact that our ancestors never left Mitzrayim completely. Which means that there wasn't that ultimate shift. There was an escape, but not a complete paradigm shift from Mitzrayim. So then what's the point of the whole thing? So they were geographically relocated from point A to point B, but mentally they remained in Mitzrayim. So what's the point? What exactly are we celebrating at the Seder that is supposed to express absolute freedom if psychologically we're still in Mitzrayim? We say, whoa, don't panic. Yes, we might be stuck at the moment, but there's hope. There's a direction. We will get to the land of Israel. And maybe we're still slave mentality. But we will get to a point of absolute freedom. Why? Because the big chap, and this is why we celebrate Pesach, is that the exodus from Egypt opened a channel that had never existed before to allow the possibility of real redemption. That will eventually result in a true geula, which will happen at a future point when we will be in Israel for real and free people for real. So what are we saying? The job is not yet done. It's very well to celebrate the miracle that Hashem gave us, but we have to celebrate it as an opportunity, not at the end, as the end of the line, but rather as a work in progress. That's why we can tell the story of the Exodus. And we can absolutely, authentically experience as if we are leaving Egypt. Why? Because the channel is wide open. In fact, to the contrary, that's what we're supposed to be doing. If we engage in the Pesach Seder and share the story as if, it is, as if it is live and personal for us, then we actually do leave our personal Mitzrayim. To the extent that we become potential free people. Because the truth is, from the original Exodus until the final liberation of Mashiach, it's one continuum, one journey, one process of leaving Egypt. We're on that journey. Any one of us can achieve it this Pesach. Because this is such a fundamental principle, and has to be shared right at the beginning of the Seder to remove those very powerful questions that one might have. So therefore, we unpack this question in a lot more detail in various other elements that follow after Manishtana, the ones that we have identified. And the base of 
So we know Chazal tell Hashem that Kadosh Baruch Hu prayed Avraham Avinu Sabreira. The Medrash tells us that Hashem gave Avraham Avinu a choice. What would you choose? Would you like your children to be exposed, so-called enslaved, in Gehenim or in Golos? Now, there's two opinions in the Medrash who made the final decision. But either way, chose Golos over Gehenim. Now, the fact that these were the two choices implies that there's a relationship between the two. That implies that the theme, the message of Golos, the experience of Golos, so the Cholorosh Golos Mitzrayim, starting, of course, with the original Golos in Egypt, must be the same theme as being in Gehenim, which is Miruk v'chaporas achet, cleansing sin. Which sin? Achet kipshut sholavah yitzorich v'miruk v'chaporahu hachet harishon. The sin that needs to be cleansed from every single human being is the original primal sin, sherishom akar kol achatoim, which is the spiritual root of every other sin that ever existed, chet eitz adas, what Adam and Chava did by eating from the tree of knowledge. Shegorim asilak ashchinim e'oritz lirikia. The impact of that avera was that it Pushed divine presence away from human consciousness. That's why the process of how to correct this was dafka given to Avram Avinu. Because we know very well that after the initial sin that pushed the divine presence one level out of our world, there were another subsequent six major averas that pushed the divine presence more and more abstract from our world until it eventually reached what's called the seventh level of abstraction. And the first person to reverse that trend and reintroduce the Shekhinah into this world was Avram Avinu. Who so-called drew the Shekhinah from the seventh to the sixth heaven, meaning to say, made Hashem a little bit more aware, conscious for us, a little bit more real for us. That's why who is given the promise that there will be success and we will eventually completely override the ill effects of the Eitz Hadas to Avraham Avinu. He was told how this is going to happen, how we will return the Shekhinah back into this world and that will happen through the experience of the Jewish people being enslaved in Egypt. Had we done everything as we could have done, that would have been the final golos, the only golos. And then naturally, the exodus would have been the ultimate liberation. We would have returned to a world as it was before the where there can be no harm, and there can be no slavery, and there can be no golos, and there can be no death. That's if we would have done things as we could have achieved them. But that's not what happened. The fact remains that the experience of the Jewish people spending 210 years in Egypt did not complete the process. As we'll discuss. So therefore, at that time, they didn't have the strength to get themselves out of Mitzrayim. And so Hashem had to reach in with a strong hand and yank them out. Why a strong hand? Because they had to override the strict letter of the law. Because when you look at things from a, an objective, legal, strict view, then 
Then the argument is, well, the goal of being in Egypt, which was, which was, the objective was to refine the Jews, the world around them, to reinstate the holy experience of the world as it was before the Chet Eitzadas. The job wasn't done. The mission is not accomplished. So logically, can't leave. The job's not done. You can't leave. So the Ebesh has to override that and be Yad Chazok of the strong hand say, I'm taking them out anyway. That explains why we say that we would have still been in Mitzrayim and Hashem had to take us out. Because the only way out of Mitzrayim at that stage, at that stage was dependent on Hashem himself. Mitzad Matzavom, from the perspective of where the Jews were up to in their spiritual development, they did not yet deserve to exit Mitzrayim. There's still a work to do over there. It's not a punishment. There's still a work to do. The work is incomplete. Where are you going? But unfortunately, because they still had work to do, sometimes they went a little bit backwards. As we know, instead of elevating the environment, the environment sucked them down all the way to the 49th level of impurity. As we well know, if the timing had been delayed even a little bit, they would never have gotten out. So they needed Yad Chazaka, they needed Ebishter to schlep them out. Or to put it differently, the language that the Alter Rebbe explains, why it is that not only did they leave Egypt, but they had to run out of Egypt. There was urgency. Why the urgency? God's got this. He can keep the Egyptians at bay. Why do you have to run? Says the Alter Rebbe, the reason is because the negative in the so-called left side of the experience of every Jewish person, the negative was too powerful. So how did they get out? Not because they had rehabilitated themselves. The way they got out of Mitzrayim is because of exposure to godliness, because Hashem revealed himself. And that exposure of godliness aroused their pintelayid, the core of their Jewish being. And at that point, at that point, the, what we identify as the foolishness that blinds our sight from doing what Hashem wants couldn't stand up to this revelation of godliness. And therefore, they could no longer delude themselves into saying, well, I could be in Mitzrayim and connected to Hashem. Suddenly it was clear that they had to get out of there. That caused them to run. Similar to what the Alter explains in Tanya, that even the most disengaged Jew, the Jew whose godly spark is buried and anethetized, when that Jew is tested about a core faith element of Judaism, which touches the Jew at the deepest part of their soul, suddenly the whole neshama wakes up and has a tremendous impact. And the same Jew who was completely disaffected is now willing to lay down his life for God. So that's why we say in the in the paragraph of Avodim Ayunu, Iluloi Hoytzia Kadosh Baruch Hu Sabesenu Mitzrayim. Had Hashem not taken us out, Harei Onu Vanei 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 Moshe Bodim Ayunu Lefarib Mitzrayim, we'd still be stuck. 
כי אילו לא יהויס היציא מצד הקדוש ברוך הוא. message being, if the exodus was not affected by Hashem, We'd have to stay there and keep working and working and working till Mashiach comes, because when we'd finish the job, Mashiach would come. And that comes even more clearly when we go to the next paragraph that speaks about the concept of the dark side of our early history. which is where we say, that initially our ancestors served idols. And now Hashem has brought us close to Him. Because we're implying that the reality of the story is that even now, when we come close to Hashem, it's not our success, it's not our efforts. It's because Hashem has pulled us towards Him. And that explains how it is possible that even today there might be a Jew who is completely detached from Judaism in spite of the fact that there was a Gula. We can understand why there's still anti-Semitism. And we understand why the only reason they don't succeed is because Hashem consistently intervenes to protect us. Because as we've explained, as long as we have not yet completed our objective to transform the world, to become a holy place, and that it's completely successful, We are not yet clean and clear of the negative in our lives. That's why we have Jews who are not as they should be. Which is why there is even an argument in the spiritual realms that we should have difficulties in our lives because we're not as we should be. Now you're going to ask, There's a fundamental question. How do we get into such a place in the first place? Why should we be stuck in, in, in this dark, spiritually bereft place? How's it possible we went down into Mitzrayim and landed up in a place over there that we can't get out? Therefore, the Baal HaGoda tells us something very sobering and, and, and very powerful. He says, Now, it's a difficult expression to translate because most people, they did bad to us. The Egyptians did bad things to us. But actually, means the Egyptians made us bad. That's why the expression is with, that they were bad. They did bad to us rather than, they, or they made us bad rather than they did bad to us. Which means, one of the terrible things, the terrible abuses of the Jews in Egypt was that the Egyptians succeeded in corrupting us with a kind of toxic behavior we ourselves were never We were never shy to, it was never on our agenda. We went into Mitzrayim to tackle a particular brand of negativity and transform it into something which is positive. But the Egyptians infected us with an even deeper, harsher form of negativity, which isn't so simple. 
And this, uh, you, can, you can understand this in a similar context to the very well-known question, Why punish the Egyptians for having persecuted the Jews? They, they were, it was a decree. Hashem said that the Jews are going to be abused. So they just did the job. Why are you punishing them? One explanation is, because they were told to enslave the Jews, but the fact that the Jews suffered, that wasn't necessarily written into the contract of this decree. That was their poor choice. In other words, they caused worse for us than what Hashem had intended for us, which is a bizarre concept when you really think about it. So what do we know now? We know that in Mitzrayim, we were infected with a very deep spiritual virus that we're still trying to get rid of. And because we're not yet rid of it, that's why there's still difficulty in the Jewish world. And when we do get rid of it, and there's a promise right at the beginning of the Haggadah, we will get there, then Moshiach will come. But you still at this point are probably thinking, wow, I thought Pesach was such an uplifting time. And at this point, it's feeling a little bit heavy, feeling a little bit pessimistic. So therefore, we have this big question. If the experience in Mitzrayim, 210 years of absolute slavery, didn't do the job, so why are we excited to leave Egypt and talk about leaving Egypt? The job is not done. Now we have a completely different perspective of Maschil Bignus. We start off by being honest about how we didn't get to where we should have. And we start, we end off on a high note. That Hashem built for us His chosen home to atone for all of our avails. Because we know, and this is discussed broadly in Hasidus, when you use the word choose, you're referring to something where the choice is not influenced by external factors. Whatever those factors might be. Choice means that the individual has dug deeply inside of themselves and said, me, who I am at my core, wants this. The ultimate, truest choice is only possible when Hashem is making that choice from the perspective of his essence. Because that's the only reality where there can be no external influence. Therefore, it's the only reality of absolute choice. When you're looking from the perspective of Hashem's essence, there isn't a fundamental difference between Yaakov and Esav that one should be favored over the other. The fact that Yaakov are the chosen people and the Jewish nation are Hashem's special people is a choice that Hashem made. There's no external factor. There's no fundamental value. As the passage continues, that Hashem chooses to love Yaakov and to reject Esau. In other words, why did Hashem choose the Jewish people? Because in essence, we are one with Hashem. Yisrael v'kuchabrichu kulochad, as the expression goes. The Jews and Hashem are one entity. V'hagilo yishabachir zoylemato. How do you see that here on earth? You see it in this world because fundamentally it doesn't appear that there's this major difference between us and anybody else, including our enemies. Hanushashneim shavim. 
These are humans, those are humans. These people do what they should, and those people do what they should. And when, in spite of that, Hashem chooses Dafka us, He's going to give us His brochas, give us His land, give us His Torah, then you know that Hashem's essence is embedded in us. This is the real message of the experience of being in Egypt and then released from Egypt. When I read the story in its most superficial manifestation, which is how the story plays out here on earth or in any of the other spiritual realms that are part of the created reality. There was a struggle. There was an Egypt. It was a powerful place. And not only in physical terms, but there's a spiritual reason why we belong in Egypt. And Hashem overrode that with His incredible, powerful hand. When you read the story from that perspective, had we stayed any longer, we'd never get out. Because when you look in this lower perspective, we actually don't deserve to get out. We're not not fundamentally different to anybody else. As the Malachim said at the time of Kriyasiyam, the Egyptians serve who they shouldn't and the Jews likewise. That's when you read the story in the created reality, in the lower dimension. But when you get into the deeper, true dimension, the root of the entire story sits at Hashem's essence. Hashem chooses because His essence chooses our souls. Because Hashem wants to illustrate we're one with Him. And there's no possibility, God forbid, that Hashem will exchange us for anybody else. And that's what it wants to tell us at the end of the whole story of the of Magid. What does it say? He gave us Beis Abachira, a house that expresses the fact that he chose us from the essence of his being. And the impact of that is lechaper. Lechaper is a very powerful word. It means to completely cleanse, not just to forgive. You can forgive somebody and not necessarily forget. To cleanse means it doesn't exist. The Madriga say Daishtalshlus, within the realm of existence, including all the spiritual existence levels, where you're not able to immediately discern that Hashem and the Jewish people are one. And we experience a similar thing in, in human terms. A child becomes a physical entity that is separate from the parent. And at that spiritual level, Averis harm, they blemish, they injure. So the only way to fix things over there is you've got to really rub away the dirt through difficulties, through golos, through punishment, well, not punishment, through suffering, etc. But when you look from the perspective of the truest connection that the people have to Hashem, which is the essence of me and the essence of Hashem are one because Hashem has chosen to make me that way. Then the removal of Averis is automatic and natural. Because you're exposing a, a dimension of the person that could never have been touched by an Avera. 
When you reach that deep, deep, deep level, it has an impact even on the conscious part of the Jewish person, the visible part of the Jewish person. That's where you find that there is complete atonement and cleansing of the person even in the visible experience of the person. It's just that we live in a reality that Hashem has, has calibrated his, his energy to fit into the process of time. So fast it works in steps. The steps are At the time of the exodus from Egypt, all we could see was the power of Geula in the created reality. You've got to run. Because you need power and you need Hashem's strength and, and the reality is we are vulnerable. We've got to escape. But the principle that actually deeper than what the eye can see, the fact that we were taken out of Egypt expresses how we are one with Hashem at our essence. That... Um, and that's going to completely clean the slate. That only became evident at the time of the Beis Hamikdash. And of course, this ties in very well with the obvious theme of the Beis Hamikdash. The Beis Hamikdash is a place of atonement without suffering. You bring offerings; you don't personally suffer. Because that is an environment within which you're able to identify how Hashem has chosen to connect with us at an essence level so we don't have to scrape away or burn away the external effects of our Aveyas. This is now the deeper spiritual meaning behind the principle that the Mishnah taught us. You start the Seder by talking about the dark side of our history and you end off with the praises. When you start of telling the story in the Haggadah, you see that the whole thing is Hashem's work. He took us out of Mitzrayim. And the beginning of the story implies that the Jews didn't necessarily make the grade, didn't make the cut, they didn't necessarily deserve it. But when we build up to the crescendo of the Haggadah, then we conclude with huge praise. That even in our world, you'll be able to see clearly the truth of our relationship with Hashem. That Hashem chooses a place to expose His connection with us and therefore atone for all of our Avedas. When we tell the story at Pesach, as in a present tense, a personal experience that we're going through, then we'll please God have the, the, the fulfillment of the promise that Nisan will be the month in the future when, Hashem, when Mashiach will redeem us. Which follows the opinion of Rabbi Yeshua, that even though it's a debate in the Gemara, the Medrash goes with his opinion by saying that Nisan was the month of the original redemption and will be the month of the future redemption. That means which implies the kind of gula that is is uh, initiated from a reality that we could never reach with all of our efforts. Meaning to say that it's a gift Hashem gives us from a dimension that is even beyond what teshuva could achieve. 
And that creates a so-called male outcome, male child, which refers to Gula Shiashlokim Gula Nitzchis, a Gula unlike the Exodus from Egypt, a kind of Gula that can never relapse. Even though it's Hashem taking the initiative, and usually we say it's when humans take the initiative that the value is more lasting, Nisan gives us the gift of both, that Hashem initiates and it lasts forever. We should have the fulfillment of what we say at the beginning of the Seder, the next year will be in Yerushalayim, will be free. As the Friedrich Rebbe explains, that that doesn't mean we have to wait until next year. Take it from Yad Nisan Zeh, and it means it will happen immediately this year, in this Nisan, which naturally would mean that next year we're free and in Israel. And then we'll be able to sing that ultimate song that expresses an ultimate geula for Hashem having redeemed us. It should happen. We should celebrate. We should be able to eat for the carbon Pesach in Yerushalayim together with Mashiach this year.